Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Stein about his new book, Accidental Kindness, A Doctor's Notes on Empathy, published by the University of North Carolina Press in October 2022. Michael Stein is a physician, health policy researcher, and author of 13 books, most recently Accidental Kindness, which we're discussing today, and Me Versus Us, A Health Divided. He currently serves as the Chair and Professor of Health Law Policy and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health. He was previously Professor of Medicine and Director of the Behavioral Medicine and Addiction Research at Brown University. Dr. Stein's work has spanned the topics of sleep and pain, addiction and HIV AIDS, mental health and behavioral risk-taking, and healthcare access and quality. And he is also the Executive Editor of the online magazine, Public Health Post. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I'm really pleased to have you here because I think that this is a book that has relevance and interest for everyone. Uh, everyone who's been lucky enough to have a doctor has had their experiences. And so really interesting to hear about the interaction from your point of view. And you are a practicing physician, so clearly you have some personal interest in your topic would you tell us a bit about your background and how it led you to write this book? Yeah, I am a practicing primary care doctor in a small town in the northeastern United States. Uh, I've been writing books for decades at this point, some fiction. Uh, I've published six novels and some nonfiction about primarily medicine, but more recently about public health. As you mentioned, a book called Me Versus Us is out uh, in the last few months, which is about why we think so much about medicine and so little about public health as a society. But this book does what that book uh, condemns a bit, which is it writes about, I write about medicine in this book. And I see patients uh, of various stripes in my office and have been writing essays about sort of those that have the greatest effect on me, I suppose, over the past uh, decade or so. So Accidental Kindness is really a collection of essays that describe a few of my patients, myself being a patient, as well as interviewing some doctors and patients about uh, particular stories that interested me. So yeah, that's that's how I came to write this book. Hmm. Well, I'd like to start with a definition that's central to your topic, and it strikes me that the book is, among other things, an exploration of what kindness is in practice. At times, you bring up different terms like compassion, empathy, forgiveness, imaginative sympathy, um, but none of these quite seem to encompass what you're after. So if you had to summarize, what does kindness from a physician to a patient feel like? Yeah, I think that to go back one step, I, th- I think why I 
decided to write about kindness and uh, realized, frankly, that my essays were about kindness, although I didn't know it initially uh, as I was writing them from year to year, is because we all have these medical stories, right? I've been a patient, my family members have been patients, and obviously I see patients. And what I've noticed over the past 20 years is more people I know grow older and perhaps grow more ill is that people are just dissatisfied with uh, medical care in the United States as they experience it. And that that um, is really not particularly about the competence of their providers, which they can't judge except by their outcomes. And generally people are satisfied by their outcomes, but um, by the interpersonal aspects of care that uh, are so damaging to people if done poorly. And uh, that's what I was writing about, right? This fundamental interaction that takes place over time in offices between doctors and patients. I'm, I'm less interested in, in acute medical care uh, or acute illness, which generally has limited interactions between doctors and patients because doctors do their work and patients in extremis usually accept it. And the interactions are, are interesting only when things frankly go wrong. And so hmm. you can come back to that. But m- my interest in kindness really came from this sort of examination of myself and some of the mistakes that I've made in my office, uh, a- as well as just hearing my friends and family talk about this. So kindness Yeah, there are lots of different terms for kindness, although I have to say kindness is one of my favorite. It's sort of antique. It's sort of left out. Um, It is a word that you will, for instance, never see uh, on the mission statement of a hospital or a doctor's group. It's a sort of forgotten term. Uh, You don't hear doctors talk about it very much. So what what is it? Uh, I, I suppose from a patient's point of view, it's 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 that it's that moment when you feel that you're being seen as something more than your symptom right that there is some some sense that your suffering that has brought you to see this professional is going to be touched and that is a that's an existential kind of moment. So there are certainly utilitarian aspects of kindness that I think are important and unfortunately even in their simplicity are forgotten by so many doctors. Eye contact, right? Uh, not making your patient feel particularly rushed, uh, allowing your patient to ask questions. These are simple acts of kindness that if forgotten really forgotten or overlooked or ignored feel like unkindness because this book about kindness is of course also about its opposite unkindness. Mm -hmm. So I expect that those things which are not always present need to be present. And that's a sort of base baseline of kindness, I would say, but that the kindness that I'm talking about is something really about this notion that the experience of illness is, is an emotional one and that um, being touched uh, around those aspects of emotionality, uh, which I've written about in other books, including perhaps loneliness as the central one of being a patient, need to be touched. And that's, that's how I think of kindness, as sort of when suffering is, is, is admitted to, and that the doctor's response to sadness is kindness. Yeah. So kind of a, a witness to the, or acknowledgement of the patient's suffering. Yeah, I think kindness is letting a patient know that a sad thing has happened. And that sad thing has happened to them and their body at this moment. And that mm-hmm. um, once that's said, we can move on to uh, understanding what might have caused that and how to make it better, which is, of course, what patients want as well. But this notion of sort of... Uh, that there's a person in front of you who, who has both an attitude 
and uh, behaviors that suggest that you know there's a moral a moral dimension to this interaction between these two strangers in a room. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting that you refer to the errors or mistakes that you've made in in not being kind or not being kind enough because that's not normally the kind of error or mistake that you hear doctors well particularly doctors write about. Yeah, I mean I do think that that a large part of you know, litigation in the United States is about that, interestingly. That is, there are lots of examples of technical errors that are never never lead to lawsuits in the United States. 95% of them don't lead to lawsuits. So what is it about those 5% that lead to it? Well, sometimes it's the severity of the damage, but often it's the interaction before, during, and around uh, the mistake that that leads to lawsuits in the United States. So I think it's a very real thing, even in this sort of transactional world of um, <laughs> malpractice litigation. Wow. Oh, that's something I hadn't thought of. Uh, so the book begins with a depiction of your medical school cohort and their early training in anatomy. Um, and you say this is the first, and this is, I'm quoting you here. The first striving for a professional ethic of stoicism based on the formula, emotion equals weakness equals lack of scientific objectivity. So what is the result of adhering to the formula um, from a doctor's perspective? Yeah, this idea of sort of the doctor's emotionality suggests weakness is problematic, I think, in many cases. Uh, I have to say that there are lots of patients, because they're not a monolithic group, this this thing called patients, right? There are lots of patients who want a sort of salesman, constantly upbeat, um, you know, strong and secure, never admitting wrong kind of doctor. There are certainly patients who want that kind of relationship, as I say, particularly around the moments of sort of acute illness. But over time, I think that people are worn down by that. And um, so the, the, the idea of sort of stoicism, non-emotional um, exhibition, which is how doctors have sort of been trained, I believe, mm-hmm. as a sort of display of scientific objectivity is really problematic. I mean, it may, it's sort of what I call, I think, double entry bookkeeping, right? That you have to both as a doctor have some remove from the patient so that you can minister to them, but also need to be intimate with them about things that are very, uh, very close to them. And, And doctors, you know, are dealing with primal emotions in the people in front of them, right? Their terror and pain and loneliness, as I said. And uh, the doctor, you know, is trying to improve the patient's condition, but also knows that they can fail or that their help will be inadequate. And so part of the actual work of that fear of failure can come across as stoicism. Um, Part of the distance of that comes from the doctor's experience of worry and pending failure, you know, creates a sort of stoicism. Part of dealing with what may be overbearing patient expectations can lead to stoicism. But in the end, I think we want our doctors to understand at least some part of our emotional makeup. And um, some doctors, of course, may not see their job as trying to get into their patient's head and emotional state at all. My, my job, they would say, is to order tests, get results, and move ahead with treatment mm-hmm. because doctors are a mixed lot. But I think that for many people, their complaint is that their doctors are emotionally unavailable. So how to exhibit empathy without being intrusive is is a trick. It's it's the art of medicine. It's it's what hard it's what's hard and and uh, we all make mistakes at it, even unintentionally. Yeah, and, and speaking of how different doctors are different, you mentioned surgeons as a group, and how as a group they tend to be uh, very cheery sorts and <laughs> optimistic and um, smiling all the time. 
Yeah, I don't think it's only that. I think they're also in general, and this is again generalizing because I've certainly met and had myself surgeons who are not like that. But in general, they're defiant, right? They they they're not going to concede, and and we as patients don't want them to concede, yeah. right? Whereas other doctors who've seen you for long periods of time, who've de- dealt with you know death and dying over periods of time, yeah. concession is going to be part of your medical life. Uh, surgeons are not operating on people typically who are, you know, on death's door or they wouldn't do surgery. So yeah. their notion is I, I'm not conceding to this and, uh, and let's, let's move ahead. So again, there are many kinds of personalities who enter medicine and, um, and we come across them as, as patients <laughs> to our good fortune and bad. Yeah. Well, and it's got to be a really tricky balance, um, allowing empathy where you're allowing yourself to feel something of what the patient is feeling and yet keeping that removed. So it, it doesn't drag you down, for instance, uh, at the end of the day, if you've seen a lot of people suffering. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, you know, the, the idea of this, of empathy, which is in the subtitle of the book is one that I'm very mixed about. It's an, it's an overused word right now. I think in America, people talk about empathy in, in all sorts of places and, and, and lots of, lots of the time. And, and, and part of that I think is sort of just societally, similarly with kindness that we talk about these things or the absence of them, because we feel the absence of them so much these days in sort of divided America. There are so many incidents where we feel we're witnessing or part of an unkind experience, not just in medicine, but just walking through the world. And so we're, we're interested in talking about this uh, all the time. Empathy is a word in lots of books and conversations, I think, at, at the moment. And, 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 you know, it really comes from this idea of sort of, you know, some fellow feeling or David Humes described it as sort of being taken out of yourself. Um, you know, that our emotional life evolves under the direct influence of feeling of those around us. But really taken literally, you know, this idea of when we see pain, we feel pain. That's what empathy is sort of is in its extreme form is dangerous for doctors, right? Right, There needs to be a certain amount of, of remove. You can't feel everybody's pain all the time or you'll be paralyzed. And frankly, yeah, you know, even since I've written the book and thought about this more over the last year or so, you know, it, it almost seems sort of impossible or sort of self self flattering to 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 believe you're truly empathetic. I, I don't think I myself is truly empathetic um, because I don't think I feel everybody's pain. It seems just impossible. So the 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 truest definition of empathy, I feel that I fail at every day. And so, what empathy has to include instead is really just a sort of openness and curiosity. You, you can't feel what someone else is feeling, but you can be curious about what they're feeling and ask them to describe it. And, and that's as close as we can come to, I think, understanding another person. It's, it's, it's impossible to truly understand another person or, or experience what they're experiencing. So I think you have to be modest about these things, even though I use this big word with a capital E called empathy. Yeah. Oh, no, that's uh, good insight. Um, so let's talk about mistakes. And in the introduction, you mentioned a mistake you made with a patient that was very troubling to you. And then in chapter two, you go on and tell the story of that patient whose name is Beatrice and your efforts to get her to comply with her treatments. And then a similar issue with another patient named Cadden. And in fact, the two incidents bother you so much that you take a break from work for several weeks. So I wonder, um, because these patients didn't necessarily go along with the treatment or want to go along with the treatment, what do you think of self-determination for patients? Is, is that a concept that a trained MD can embrace or even accept? Well, I think, I think if, if the modern notion of the doctor-patient relationship is partnership, which I think is sort of commonplace in the United States. It isn't in other places necessarily, right? There's there's still many places in the world where doctors withhold 
important information, including diagnoses from patients because it would hurt them too much. Let's not tell them what they really have, right? You sort of hear that line. And it still persists in different cultures. In the United States, I think there's a general acceptance of this idea of sort of partnership. So partnership suggests, um, you know, that you're going to provide your information as a professional to this person. And this patient's going to, in the end, based on your guidance, make their own decision based on preferences of their own. Their decision may well be, what would you do, doctor? And you would give them your preference, but that's their preference at that moment. So I think that idea of partnership means that when we think a patient is doing something that we wouldn't do or that we disagree with or that we simply don't understand why they're making a decision, such as in the case of Beatrice, like, why aren't you taking your medications if it can keep you alive? Is that not a value of yours to stay alive as long as you can, then we're confused, right? Because doctors, you know, over their lives have developed loyalty to certain abstractions like longevity, like that's what everybody should want is longevity. And that um, when it's really tested in reality, that that's not what somebody necessarily wants, such as in the story of Cadden, as you say, one of my other patients, who chooses against longevity because he has, you know, other reasons to not necessarily want to live in the state that he's in. These are um, a sort of breach at the moment in a way of the partnership agreement. And of course, if we like that patient personally, it's hurtful to us to think of losing a patient who we like, but in the end, I think the doctor's role is to be respectful, not to overpower people, and to accept decisions um, that are difficult for both sides. And that acceptance is, in a sense, a form of kindness. So if you ask me, can doctors embrace the concept of self-determination? I would say, well, they, they must in the end, but they should understand along the way how difficult that can be sometimes. And you found it difficult with those two patients. Very difficult. Yeah. Beatrice, I, I made a sort of <clears throat> error in my use of words that she resented very much. I won't tell the whole story here to you, let the prospective readers buy the book <laughs> and read the story. But I made a bad choice of words that she reacted badly to and basically left my care because of what I said to her. And it was a mistake on my part, and I could have done it better. The reaction was extreme, but um, that was one. And, and the and the Cadden stories, as I said, a, a man who has multiple diagnoses, who's nearing the end of his life, but doesn't want to prolong his life exceptionally, whereas I wanted him to as a person who I liked very well and, and wanted him to live longer, thought he could live longer with certain treatments that he simply didn't want to undergo. And... It was hard for me. So these were two cases. Again, in the Cadden instance, I said things that were perhaps too harsh, and um, you know it was out of out of care and love for this patient, and not um, not because I, I I thought he was making a terribly wrong decision. I just thought that uh, I, I wish he had made a different decision. And do you think that's especially hard because of your training, because you're trained to save lives, you're trained to fix things that can be fixed? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, yeah, I think, you know, that that's always the, the last recourse of doctors. They say, listen, I can't deal with it if, it, if, that, if I can't, if I can't save this person, I'm going to walk away. What can I do? What do you want from me? And, you know, that's that's the last recourse of people who are, you know, not interested particularly in the emotional lives of their patients. And and therefore, in many cases, the suffering of their patients and 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 exempting themselves from the possibility of kindness by by walking away. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So moving on to chapter three, um, which is called Acting Like a Doctor. You describe a period when a consultant was brought into your hospital to coach the doctors in communication skills, and you became annoyed. You even got angry um, when she handed out index cards and instructed the doctors to use them as communication tools. And then in the book, you use the incident to examine your own beliefs and skills around communicating with patients. But in the end, you still seem bothered by the index card business. So what was it about this exercise that troubled you and how does the idea of kindness figure in it? Yeah, so this was a story about our our hospital deciding based on patient surveys that doctors were doing something wrong that wasn't optimizing patient satisfaction. Um, and the decision was, well, part of it could be ameliorated by having a communications consultant. And a communications consultant is just that. You put doctors in a room and you try through role playing or watching videos of kind or unkind, what I would call, they didn't use that word, interactions um, to improve the interactions with patients in general so that the hospital's satisfaction rating would go up and more patients would come. And, you know, there's, there's lots of evidence that A, many doctors are abrupt with patients and unkind. Um, B, that when you do actual studies of uh, what patients want and you show them videotapes of other patients having conversations with physicians about treatment or about preventive care, um, that really just adding small sentences, small word changes to conversations um, can make people feel that they've been heard or the doctor is more caring. And there've been lots of studies in oncology patients that have shown that. And therefore, why couldn't a communications consultant extract some words that would be useful for all oncologists to use with all cancer patients when the time was appropriate? And if you had it on a little index card that you could pull out of your pocket, wouldn't that be wonderful for the satisfaction of patients? And, you know, part of me absolutely thinks, yeah, there are lots of different kinds of doctors. Some of them are um, not valuing kindness particularly highly. Uh, a consultant like this who gives them a cheat sheet um, would be a good idea. Like, let's bring up the worst offenders by calling attention to sort of better practices than they're doing. And if they're willing to bend at all or being monitored to bend, which is often what it takes with doctors, being monitored, surveilled, and fed back information in comparison to your colleagues, then, yeah, I, I sort of like that idea. I mean, all of us think, all doctors think, you know, we are communicating just fine, right? It's the other people. Like, why is there a problem? It's not me. It's the other people. Um, I think that's true in lots of places of work, that it's not about me, but I'm getting roped into this. And so uh, the overall notion of the doctors can communicate better, and there's a section of them who really communicate quite badly, makes absolute sense to me. But I, you know, prided myself on sort of interest in communication. So to have to sit through this for the hours that it took felt bad. And, and to be handed index cards, of course, once I allowed myself to sort of start to resent this, felt very robotic, right? That this is exactly what you don't want patients to feel, or at least my friends and family don't want to feel that they are 
you know, one of many patients this person is seeing today, and they're pulling out their card with every patient to use those particular words. And that feeling of being one of many and not individual is a feeling that many people experience, I think is unkindness. And so, and so this idea of the robotic kindness uh, bothered me and, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy that particular session. And so, I think that's the link to kindness, that the idea of um, n- not being present, not being fresh, not being sort of true to your feelings, but rather sort of playing a game of pulling a card out of your pocket, which is very blunt, right, felt, um, you know, lousy to me. So did you try using the index cards at all? I think there are probably some lines here and there. I never use an index card. I toss them all in the garbage, but yeah. there were certainly <laughs> some things, certainly some things that I listened to and um, uh, thought was useful. I mean, what it made me do was sort of try to read the literature on this, right? I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher, not just a practicing doctor. So I actually tried to go back to the literature to prove to myself you know, that there are, that this is what patients want, that there are certain small sections that do that. And and then it led to, to sort of, you know, this sort of broader idea, which was one of the later chapters in the book is does, does any of it matter? That is, you know, it may matter to the individual doctor or the individual patient, but does kindness improve patient outcomes, which is a really empirical question. And I, one of the chapters in this book is about that issue is, can you prove to yourself you know, if you're a skeptic or you're an optimist, that there there are well done clinical studies to suggest that kindness does matter. And again, I could give you my answer here, or you could read the chapter and see what I think from that chapter of the book. Yeah, but it's interesting because in those clinical studies, the kindness is sort of um, manufactured, isn't it? I mean, it's it's clinical research kindness. It's not spontaneous kindness. It is. I mean, some of them are sort of, yes, planned plants of particular words. And and part of it is just a general sense a patient will have of their sort of doctor's, you know, empathy or kindness level, right? People are asked, you know, what, what was your sense of that, of your doctor during that visit or during that year of being treated for high blood pressure? So people will give you a gestalt, but they'll also you know, in different kinds of studies respond to a particular interaction as opposed to a general feeling about this person. So you mentioned outcomes and outcomes are better. You mentioned a study with oncology patients or more than one study uh, where outcomes improve with kindness. And so would that fall under, and I say this knowing that placebo has a real healing component, but would that be part of a placebo effect? Um, placebo effects are very complicated. That's a whole yeah, other issue. I think it it, is, I think yeah. part of the placebo effect is, of course, a good part of it is expectation. And so depending on what the patient's expectations are of that doctor, of that interaction, of that particular day, I think is absolutely at play here, particularly with relative with doctors who you don't know particularly well, right? Your expectations could be driven by lots of things, your mood, your level of pain, which usually extinguishes all sorts of reason in our minds, um, et cetera. And so, yeah. Sorry, I know it's a complicated issue. So, Um, well, all right. So um, let's get on to another aspect of communication, um, dishonesty or lying, which is the name of chapter seven. Um, And in this chapter, you write about your encounters with Patrick, who's a young man who has an addiction to painkillers. And you discuss what I would consider a delicate matter, that patients are unreliable narrators of themselves, that addicted patients tend to lie, and that doctors are not bound to tell the truth to their patients, um, or even often guidance about being honest with patients in medical school or when to be honest with patients. So how do you navigate a course between honesty lack of honesty and kindness when it comes to patients who are really driven by addiction. Yeah. Your description seems a little off to me. So let's try to unpack it a bit. I mean, I don't think that doctors have really much or any right to be dishonest. 
I mean, I think that there are, um, you know, instances of sort of white lies or the timing of information that you might want to omit from one minute or one session to the next, um, which is, I guess, a form of dishonesty. That the chapter on lying was really not about physicians lying. Right. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sure, we could talk about maybe yeah. there are some examples, but I'm not. I'm not a, bo- a booster of <laughs> physicians lying about yeah. anything. So the the chapter was really about addiction, where yeah. I, I posit that the that the central paradigmatic feature of addiction, um, particularly to illicit substances like heroin or fentanyl or Percocet used without a prescription, et cetera, opioids is the sort of prescription or drug of choice these days in much of America, as you know, um, you know, the central feature of people with addiction is lying. And that for doctors to deal with people who are um, addicted uh, is to understand that they're going to lie. And and doctors understand this, I think, even relatively early on after they've been lied to a few times. And then you know, you'll often hear medical students say, oh, that person, you know, drinks heavily. When they tell you they've had three drinks that day, they've probably had seven. So everybody's going to underestimate and that, oh, I've caught them lying. But there are all sorts of lies that happen in medical offices. And the more uh, needy the patient is to get something out of you, um, the less ashamed they are to get it out of you. Um, When dealing with illegal substances like some prescription drugs that are psychoactive, you know, people will lie. And people who are addicted, uh, lying is a, is a kind of self-defense. It's a survival mechanism. It's not a dilemma for them. And so, um, you know, lying with the intention of really deceiving you as a physician makes many physicians angry. Like, I don't, I don't want to be lied to, as opposed to and I understand that utterly. And in the, a short-term interaction with a person where you suspect that they're lying, you get your back up as a physician and don't want to handle that. But frankly, for people like me who take care of those with addiction over long periods of time, it's really sort of understanding when and why people lie, what their intent is on misleading, whether that's a moral decision on their part to mislead you as opposed to a sort of reflexive uh, decision is, um, is interesting and sort of part of the therapeutic process. And so the chapter called Lying was really my encounters with Patrick, as you said, a person with an addiction to painkillers. And I try to explain the sort of delicacy of, of dealing with those people and why it can be a therapeutic aid if it doesn't drive you crazy. And yes, of course, all patients are in part unreliable narrators, right? We don't remember when the pain exactly began. Did I take Tylenol or did I take Advil for it? You know, we, we, we just can't be reliable narrators often about our sort of bodily tales, but that's different. That has a different intent than a person who has an addiction where the lying is, as I said, sort of purposeful misleading. Right. So do you ever go along with that lie a little bit when they say I need painkillers for my back that's killing me because I was painting the walls yesterday and I, you know, got to have some painkillers to get through this back pain. And you know, that's not really why they need the painkillers. Yeah. So that's, as you, as you're suggesting, that is the story that I tell in this. And, and the question then becomes, you know, what's the upside and what's the downside to, um, engaging with this person and what do you think the chances are that they will engage with you over a period of time, which it will take for them to, uh, come to the truth and, um, you know, which will be part of their recovery process. And, you know, if this is a person who's a one-off who you're going to see in an emergency room, most people are, uh, most doctors are hesitant, of course, and rightly so, to provide uh, 
medications that are potentially harmful. You wouldn't want to do that with somebody you'll never see again. Now, using it as a lever for other people who you are going to see again, and it is a sort of a sort of um, unspoken contract as to what's going on between you, and you believe that their harm is minimized and there's an upside to um, participating with them essentially in their addiction for some limited period of time, then it gets more complicated. But the simple answer and the less interesting answer for me as a writer is, of course, you know, you came in, you lied to me, you're addicted, I'm not giving you anything. And that is the general way of the world. And I think that's right. So how successful have you been with patients like Patrick in terms of getting breaking through to where they admit they have an addiction and they're working to get over it. Well, again, it depends what the setting is and where they come to see me. I mean, I have an office practice where people, you know, they know I wrote a book often uh, uh, 10 or 12 years ago called the addict, um, which was about one patient with that I worked with for one year. And if any of your listeners want to read about sort of addiction and, it was right before the opioid epidemic. It was sort of a prediction of the opioid epidemic because this was a, a young woman who came to me, uh, college educated with an opioid addiction. And I thought, well, if this, if this is the kind of person who's coming into a primary care office now, there's a lot of um, iceberg under the water. And it turned out that, of course, we've had you know 15 years of people dying of addiction at rates mm-hmm. that are unheard of in the history of the United States. And so the book is really about sort of one person with me for one year and there are other stories turned in in this book called the addict that um you know talk about my success and failure of this so this is something that i enjoy because when you can really um turn around the life of somebody who's collapsed into addiction it is a remarkable thing to see and a wonderful feeling for me to have as a provider so um, the rates of success are not great, but they're very dramatic when they're successful. And it's, um, I think it's really fun. Hmm. Wow. That's great. So moving into the, the later part of the book, um, you go into the tale of a doctor and a patient who you call Dr. S and Ms. P. And just to briefly summarize for people, Dr. S inadvertently caused lasting damage to Ms. P during a surgical procedure. And the story is about their relationship since that time. And I believe from reading the book that the story had a personal resonance for you. So would you tell us about that and what the effect that researching the story of Dr. S and Ms. P have on you? Yeah. So um, after I had made these mistakes in my own career and I was a, um, you know, not a young doctor anymore. Uh, and I'm sort of looking around and trying to understand this idea of mistakes and sort of forgiveness. I, I came in contact through some mutual friends with a surgeon in a town a few hours away from me and a patient who that surgeon had um, injured during an operation who lived, they knew each other before the surgery, and they lived in a small town together. And they uh, worked in the same hospital because the patient who was injured by the surgeon was a nurse at that very hospital. Uh, uh, I thought, well, that's a very complicated situation. And then I heard I reached out to them and I said, would you each be willing to talk to me separately about sort of what these last years from the time of the surgery forward, and this was some years after the surgery had injured this woman, um, would you both talk to me about what this was? Because I'm a writer and I'm writing an essay about forgiveness, which is a very special form of kindness in my mind. And... um, and I had my own forgiveness things that um, I was dealing with for many decades. I, I I had always believed that my father had been essentially, what I say, killed by his doctor. That is, had not been treated 
optimally and had died when he might have lived um, with a chronic medical illness. And, and I had always sort of blamed that doctor, never quite forgave that doctor. And so I was interested in this topic of forgiveness. And so I drove many times over many months to interview this doctor and this patient about their experience. And yes, this chapter of the book is about their, how they made sense of their relationship going forward after this uh, event. Fascinating, fascinating. And, you know, I was very grateful for them for talking about it with me. So honestly and openly, and um, it was as always a complex situation. Would, Would she sue him? Had she sued him? Why? Had she or hadn't she sued him? Did he feel he'd made a mistake? Um, if it wasn't a mistake, what was it? What did he fear most? How had his life changed since he had uh, had this experience with this person he knew? So this was this was you know a classic small town story where the people were willing to speak. Hmm. Seems quite unusual. They would both be willing to speak. They were quite fond of each other. They had been fond of each other before the surgery. She had gone to him for an elective procedure. She had chosen him. They knew each other. He had a good reputation. He still had a good reputation, although his, you know, how he was treated in his community after this was, you know, rocky. Um, And so it was, it, it made sense that they had a continuing relationship and had come to some way of, thinking about it and therefore talking about it. And did you feel differently about um, blaming the doctor for your father's death after spending all this time? Because you spent quite a lot of time speaking with um, Dr. S and Ms. P. Yeah. And reading the sort of philosophy of forgiveness of which there's a very interesting, um, writings about what the sort of components are of successful or unsuccessful forgiveness. I think that's an interesting topic. Do I feel differently? Mm. Um, yeah, I think I, I feel a bit differently. Um, you know, I don't really know the facts of my father's case because I was a young person when, when he died. And so, um, you know, I won't ever sort of, be able to complete all of the necessary elements of sort of full forgiveness of sort of having some um, interaction perhaps with his doctor and understanding more, but yeah, I think it changed it. And, and I think at the moment in my career, this was, it also allowed me to sort of think about my own mistakes and um, in a different light. And so that, I think it was, it was very helpful and is a, is a long part of, this book. Mm-hmm. So what is required for forgiveness? Oh, there's, there are, there are a lot of, a lot of steps <laughs> required for forgiveness. It, it takes, it takes a long period of time and um, yeah, it requires, I, 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 first of all, it requires, you know, steps from both, parties, right? Forgiveness is, is always uh, bilateral in a certain way, right? It needs to be granted. It needs to be um, that resentment by the injured party has to be moderated or given up. The, in the best cases, the person who has been injured has to in a sense, be empathetic, like to be sort of imaginatively enter into the role of being the offender. And through this reframing of, you know, thinking of herself as her surgeon, revise her judgment of that surgeon. Um, Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complicated series of steps, you have to um, address the surgeon in this case directly and really grant forgiveness. That's really um, important. And, and by doing so, you're sort of dropping any assumption that you're morally superior to that surgeon. So it's, it's a complicated series of steps that can take many years to come through. And, and it's really sort of 
a gift when it's when it's given. And is forgiveness a form of kindness? I think it is. I think it's really a very, I mean, I make the argument in this essay, I, I sort of felt it that way, that it really was a, a profound sense of kindness that I really hadn't even thought about um, before I met these two. I thought it was really just an, an incredible form of kindness where, to go back to where we talked in the beginning, it's sort of this need to deal with sort of that something sad has happened and, and to, you know, get, get, admit to that and also not ruthlessly blame somebody for it. Um, and to, to get that anger that's often lodged deep inside um, out is, is very, very hard. It's hard not to be hard hearted. It's hard to, you know, salvage your dignity um, when, when you've been left, um, injured, but it, it really, I think for this particular woman, this particular patient, she really saw it as sort of an important step in her own spiritual growth. And it was a remarkable story that I found, you know, deeply moving. Yeah. Yeah. It was a remarkable story. Well, Michael, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I do want to ask you, um, because you've just published two books back to back within a short time, among all your other work, um, what are you working on next? Yeah, what I'm working on next is uh, two other projects. I just finished putting together 65 essays about COVID uh, and sort of our response to COVID you know, both sort of technical and emotional and ethical and uh, 65 sort of short essays about COVID that I wrote sort of in real time during 2021. That book is finished and out. And um, I'm also, I wrote a book a few years ago called Broke, where I have many patients who are broke, who have no money. And um, I talk to them about money, which is a very interesting feature. And that book, Broke, I think... Um, led me to another project that I'm just finishing now, which is about um, uh, physical labor. So uh, when I talk to patients about sort of the work they do, I'm interested in those who are physical laborers because it's, you know, a sort of forgotten underclass often in the United States. And, and of course, it also leads to lots of health care. And so I'm interested in them telling me about, you know, how they came to do the physical work they do. So those are those are two projects that I'm working on at the moment. Gosh. And do you ever sleep? Yeah, I, I do. I wish do I you? slept better. I wish I slept better. I need more sleep than I get, but it's I'm not staying up writing. I'm staying up <laughs> thinking about how I can get sleep. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know how you fit it all in, but um, I, I do want to add that um, I, reading the book had an effect on me because I recently had to fill out um, – a survey because of a doctor's appointment I had had and they wanted feedback and they wanted, it was an open-ended question. And so I said, well, um, everybody involved was kind. And then I thought, huh, you know, I wonder if I, I don't think I would have used that word before, but when I thought about it, it seemed to fit. Oh, that's a good story. Well, I'm glad they were kind to you and let's bring the word back. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. Um, so I want to remind everyone, the book is accidental kindness, a doctor's notes on empathy um, by Dr. Michael Stein. And Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Rachel, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation.